Lord God, you've revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that by your word now, you would both reveal yourself into our hearts and minds, and then also lead us into obedience before you. For we ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all realities of you have been revealed to us. Amen. Perhaps the first thing I should do is just to invite you, those of you to whom this applies, to let go of whatever frustration you feel, because always on these kind of days, uh, you, from our point of view, we we spend time saying, uh, this Sunday is going to be different, knowing full well that during the week, most of us will probably have forgotten that today was going to be different, and you've turned up and you've gone, oh, it was that Sunday, wasn't it? So just let it go. Today, we hit Trinity Sunday. The stories of Jesus lie behind us, born as a child, redeeming a people, pouring out the spirit. They've occupied us at Christmas, at Easter, and then last week at Pentecost. And now we remember that it was all of it so that we could have full access to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How differently, then, we have to shift our minds to grasp what it must have felt like to live in the days of Solomon. Have a look, please, at chapter 6 and verse 1. It's on page 341. In the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, in the month of Ziv, the second month, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord. 480 years since the start of the Exodus. The date mattered. If the writer is going back to the start of the Exodus from Egypt, he's marking out a new era. The Exodus began the wanderings of God's people. The temple now begins their resting. The God who went ahead of them is now at rest among his people. And that's why so much of these next few chapters, in fact, is taken up with the story of the temple, and we will hear more about that in weeks to come. Hiram is the king uh, up in what we would now call Lebanon, at Tyre, on the coast. He's been friendly with David, and he offers products to Solomon. The stone and the wood come from the hills of Lebanon. And then the builders can get to work. Now, the bit I want us to notice is chapter 6 and verse 7. In building the temple, only only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any other iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. Why not? Well, because of a rule in Exodus, in the law of Israel where no altar could be built to the Lord according to the law of Israel that used chisels or iron tools. And why why not? Because the building, if you think about it, the building of an altar at a particular site, say we decided to build something here, it wouldn't be that difficult. We could get stuff in and we could use the tools to construct it. And that reflected the fact it was easy, 
So there are lots of idol sites with altars built that way. But doing things this way, cutting accurately off-site and then assembling precisely on-site, that's really hard. But it's appropriate, it doesn't matter if it's hard, when God has said that there is only to be one altar in one place, and that is precisely what he had said. One altar in one place in Jerusalem, it's going to be really hard to build it. That doesn't matter, you're only going to be doing it once. It's not like the idol sites that are all around the countryside. And I invite us to notice that. Because we need to register the spiritual heart of what the temple is about. There's lots of stuff about stone and wood and gold. But the meaning of the temple was that this was at the center of what it meant to be the people of God, the people of Yahweh, his name. Negatively, it meant that the temple was to be different from all the idolatry around them. Positively, it meant that they were to follow the ways of God, beginning with their leader. This is chapter 6 and verse 11. The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to God, to David, your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. The good news, then, is that this temple was to be a sign of a holy people, a people set apart as God's own. The bad news, with what I reckon is 910 pages to go, is that we know it didn't work out. I'm uh, reading a, um, a detective novel at the moment, and I was quite puzzled because the person who I thought was the heroine has got killed off quite early in the process, which has told me that actually most of the book is going to be about finding out who killed her, not about the process of getting to her death. And, and the same kind of thing here is going on. We, we learn about the temple very early in the story, which means the story is going to be bigger than that. The temple ideal was not abandoned, verse 13 says. What could be better than verse 13? I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. It wasn't abandoned, but it was transformed into something better, and we know what that was. Instead of many sacrifices, one sacrifice. Instead of access once a year, access all the time. Instead of access by one person on behalf of all the people, access by everybody. The sacrifice, the one sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary means that no more sacrifice for sin can be made. It has been made once for all. Uh, This is not the temple that was around when Jesus uh, is killed. That was the second temple. It was put up by the Herods. Nonetheless, it had, as this did, a curtain. And when the temple curtain at the, uh, at the time of the cross is torn in two, it is the sign of God's open access to his people forever. 
And indeed, the language of the temple is used in completely new ways once we get into the New Testament. Jesus says about the temple, look, you can destroy the temple in three days and I will raise it up again. And St. John tells us that they didn't understand at the time, but after they understood that he had been speaking of his body, he knew that he himself was now the place where God dwells. Just imagine what it takes to look out on this vast construction, and the second temple was bigger than the one we're having described here. This vast construction, uh, uh, glorious in stone and gold, in ivory, to look at that and say, yeah, well, that's had its time. I'm now the place where God dwells. Yet another of those times where you think, if this, this man is either utterly absurd, utterly mad, a lunatic, or he actually really does mean what he says. And it really is true. But then after Jesus dies and rises and the Spirit is poured out, the language of the temple moves on again. St. Paul tells us that we are no longer a people who walk to the temple itself. Rather, we are where God makes his dwelling. So do we do not gather this morning as those who come to God's house. We are God's house, simply meeting where there's a convenient roof. When we sing, better is one day in your house, we mean it's better to be together. We don't mean it's better to come to church. It is better to be together than to have many thousands of days away from one another. And it is still the same promise that is there in verse 13. I will live among my people Israel. The only change is that the people Israel have become the people God always intended should live by faith, not by performing acts of the Jewish law. As we sit here, we are the Israel among whom God lives. We know this God. We are saved by this God. We are renewed by this God. This God who has made himself known to us now as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the same God, but now revealed in all the fullness of all that he has ever been. The temple was an astonishing achievement. The politics that got them to the point where they could put up the temple was an astonishing achievement. And God dwelt there. And when God took flesh upon himself in Jesus, that was far more astonishing. And God dwells there. And isn't it, in a way, isn't it even more astonishing that you can kind of get it that God might move his dwelling place from the temple to the body of his beloved son. But isn't it even more astonishing that he should move it to us? Such is the love of God that what I'm looking out on now is the dwelling place of the Most High. You, us, Yet, in a way, it is just as important as ever to pay attention to verse 7 and to avoid idolatry. What might that idolatry be for us? Well, we know that at first, the idols for them were the kind that humankind makes for itself with chisels and bolts and nails and stuff that 
gets put in place. But then the story of the Bible tells later on of the idolatry that was made of the temple itself. This astonishing achievement was no longer just the dwelling place of God, but a thing in its own right. So that the religious leaders were appalled when Jesus said, knock it down and in three days I will raise it up. Of course they were appalled. But idolatry is always the same thing. It means taking a good thing created and giving it too much attention, distracting from God. So I wonder what it would be like if we, the temple of God in our generation, got just a little bit idolatrous. I was very struck by a contrast last week, last Sunday. For those of you who weren't here, let me say what happened. It was Pentecost. And I invited us all, as we came to the communion rail, to lift our hands to pray for God's Spirit to continue his work and increase that work within us, his work of renewing us and changing us, especially if we've been walking the Christian road for some time. And actually at the rail I was very moved. I saw hand after hand going up, a forest of hands, and I gather it was true across the other rails as well. Of all ages and stages... And I take it as a longing that we want in our heart of hearts to change, to grow, to be different today from how we were last month, to be holier this year than we were last, to be more joyful today than we were yesterday. We long. I certainly do, but I don't think it's me based on those hands I saw going up. Indeed, we have an unfulfilled longing that God should be ever more real. What was it uh, we heard uh, from Carol? More and more and more and more and more and more. But we don't just want cakes, more and more of them. We want God more and more and more and more and more and more. And good and proper that is, and yet I spoke of a contrast... I've been here a while and I know many of you and I know some of you very well. And I know that too many of us would die of shame before we acknowledge to one another that longing. We might bring it to a communion rail in the confidentiality of a fairly anonymous prayer. But if we were asked that Sunday, how are you? We'd say fine when it wasn't. As they took pride in the stones and the gold of the temple, we can take pride in our being here. Now, we probably didn't leave the house today saying, I'm one of the living stones of the temple, and I'm off to be good today. It's not that kind of pride. And yet I felt last week the sense of a people keeping it together on the outside, but with an aching longing inside for God to move and to change things. A few weeks after the uh, parish weekend in February, I read one of the anonymous feedback forms. Well, I haven't seen any changes in the church. But I hang on to the thoughts of a couple of people that were expressed at that weekend itself, that for the first time they saw us willing to be vulnerable, willing to ask for prayer. Lots of us. Not just a few, not just in a corner. Willing to acknowledge that we didn't have it all together, that we didn't have everything sorted. And to me, it suggests that we may suffer from an idolatry of Sunday best. 
I don't mean the suit or the hat or the nice shoes. It's not that kind of Sunday best. I don't suppose God cares tuppence for any of that. But there can be an idolatry of the desire that we should seem on Sunday to be on the inside, what actually we know we are not. It's not a very bad thing. Idols aren't always a bad thing. They're normally a good thing gone wrong. And it can come because we we actively want to live up to what it seems others have. When life is rubbish, if we make it sound and look better than it is, if we keep saying fine, then maybe that can become what we inhabit. It will really become like that. But I think our February weekend put a crack in that kind of idolatry. And I think if I attend to that forest of hands last week, more of you because I need you, then we can allow for another crack. And maybe another and another until it comes crashing down. The temple was a glorious and beautiful thing. But it was completely destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Jesus himself was God come among us, dwelling among us, but he was crucified. Suffering and damage is the way for even the most glorious dwellings of God, at least while this life endures. So let's not be idolatrous about what sort of thing we are. Yes, we are the temple of God. Yes, God himself dwells among us, and that is a rich and glorious thing. But suffering is still part of the path before us. And we're okay with that, generally. But only if that means the sufferings of circumstance. Often enough, we pray for those going through tough circumstances. But we're less okay with it when suffering is a puzzle and a frustration and perhaps our fault. We tend not to pray for those who are living with really bad choices they've made. Or for those who are sliding away from the worship of Christ. For those of us who have just let ourselves become weary of the race. Or those of us who daren't look below the surface of our own lives for fear that chaos will overtake us. It's sometimes easier to invite prayer for the cold that we have. But to ignore the possibility of prayer for the chaos. And my only real message today is to take the story of the temple. On the day we focus on the true worship of the Trinity and to beseech us to give up on the idolatry of pretending to one another that we all have it together. This summer we're about true growth. Growth in numbers, as who cares and the holiday club lead us closer to a new congregation. Growth in service, as the community games give us a chance to relate to our neighbourhood. But God cannot give us true growth if we are spending energy pretending. We cannot commend the gospel if we're honest with God inside while not really able to be honest with others on the outside. How can we then speak to others of failure and grace, of the glory of restoration from death? What can be done about idolatry? Well, repentance and return. It's okay for life not to be great if the Creator sustains us and the Redeemer forgives us and the Spirit renews us, 
Indeed, that's why it is an idolatry to pretend, because it hides from ourselves and from others the absolute dependence upon God that God intends should be our joy. And so let's pray. And this is a prayer before the Trinity for the repentant. And if this prayer is not for you, because this is not the pride from which you suffer, that's okay. Just don't get proud about it. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. Amen. Now repentance, like its partner faith, is shown by its fruits, and therefore live as though pride has been put behind you. Live as those who know by faith that God dwells among his people. Thank you, Simon. And give yourself to his service. Please stand for our final hymn, God, whose almighty word.